And if you want to be seated and find your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, we're continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. We're in Matthew chapter 6 today. I'd like to just ask you, how does God develop our spiritual lives? You may be like a lot of folks that have settled for just a shallow relationship with God. And you can kind of cruise along for a while, but your soul is yearning for so much more. And if you are in a situation where you are tired of superficiality and trendy, and you want substance and truth, then you're going to want to pay close attention to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. If you want to see what does Jesus emphasize to develop the spiritual lives of his disciples, you're going to want to pay close attention to this text. Because God wants you to experience vibrancy, depth, the fullness of his grace. He intends for every one of his people to actually come to the fullness of maturity. And if you want to know how to have depth, look what Jesus emphasizes. And the first thing you're going to see in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, 9 through 13, is that we need to prioritize prayer. Now, the prayer that we're going to look at is going to be very familiar. It's known as the Lord's Prayer. It really could actually be called the disciples' prayer. And it is the pattern in which we are to follow. We're to pray in a particular manner. Now, many people have memorized this prayer. I have. Nothing wrong with that. This is God's inspired word. But what happens is that some folks just say, well, I'm just going to go through those words, and you hardly even engage your mind while you're doing that. As we saw last week, that sort of repetition without engaging is exactly the opposite of what God intends. That's not true communing with God. That's not really prayer. Now, uh, this prayer, this Lord's Prayer, let me help you have a little perspective on that. There are 68 words in English for this pattern that Jesus gives us. To give you some perspective, the Gettysburg Address has 286 words. The U.S. Const, uh, Declaration of Independence is 1,000, uh, excuse me, 1,322 words. Anybody want to take a guess, federal tax code, how many words are in there? It, there are over 10 million, and there's probably going to be more, okay? And no wonder that there's such a lack of clarity. I mean, sometimes you can say a lot more by saying a lot less. And in just in these simple words, Jesus gives us a pattern that is meant to revolutionize our lives, our prayer lives. And yet so often when it comes to the matter of prayer, we only pray when we're actually desperate. It's kind of like we treat prayer like a first aid kit, like there's a problem and then I'll just kind of like reach for a quick band-aid. Or like a fire extinguisher where it has the sign, you know, like use only in the case of emergency. That is how many people actually think about and utilize prayer in their lives. So I'm sure you've heard this. There is nothing else that we can do. I think all that we can do now is we can pray. You know, like, well, that's not going to mean anything. That won't make any difference. And so kind of, well, the last thing we can do, the only thing left, because we've done everything else we can do, is to pray. And Jesus wants to completely revolutionize our prayer lives. And that's what he gives us in this pattern. And 
friends, you need to understand that you have to develop your prayer life. Jesus' disciples finally hit upon this. In a parallel passage in Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, they had noticed that Jesus spent so much time in prayer, so much so in comparison to their kind of feeble prayer life that they actually asked him. In Luke chapter 11, verse 1, it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, which is a good thing, they actually let him finish versus interrupting, but after he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. You and I, we have to learn how to pray. And even that just sounds kind of odd because we're like, well, prayer should just kind of be natural, as if our hearts are inclined to pray and they know how to pray. And just because we know Jesus, we'll just automatically pray and have these wonderful prayer lives full of all sorts of depth. Maybe you've discovered that's actually not the case. If you think that, you know, my prayer life is like anemic, it's like barely there. Yeah, maybe pray quick before my meals and maybe just about a few things, but really I don't pray very much, then what we need to do is to learn how to pray. And that's why this is so important. He gives us a pattern on how to develop our spiritual lives, specifically our prayer lives, and it's meant to be a template. He's giving us the primary components of prayer. And I've been so eager and excited to share this with you. Because I wish that I would have really come to understand this many years ago. I wish earlier in my life I had really understood this pattern that Jesus has given us. And I have found what Jesus presents in this model for how to go about prayer has been so meaningful to me personally. I just want to share it with you. So let me give you the primary components of prayer right from the words of Jesus. And the first one is, we need to have the component of adoration. Notice what he says, verse 9. He says, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. The first thing I want to point out is, is notice it's our. All, all of the pronouns, there are no singular pronouns in this model for prayer. It's our, it's us. You see, you have to break away from it's all about you, the singular focus on yourself to recognize that you are a part of a larger body of believers. You're part of God's family. And there are believers around the globe. And so he says, begin with adoration, our Father. In Aramaic, the language that was spoken in Jesus' time, it is Abba. It's a term for intimacy. When you speak of, a, of the Father, it speaks of intimacy, authority, the ability to have warmth in relationship. And if you want to add vitality to your prayer life, to recognize that we all come together to Him who is our Father. You see, the normal pattern for prayer is that you come to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we come to Him who is our Father. True prayer actually is, comes by having a relationship with God that is only possible when you have a relationship 
with his son, the one who's redeemed us from our sin, the one who has forgiven us, filled us, given us his spirit, our father. This is so revolutionary. The pagans, they prayed. They pray even today, but they never pray to our father. Even the Jewish people, when Jesus said this, This was radical and revolutionary. There's only 14 times in the Old Testament in which God is referenced as as Father. No Jewish person would ever approach God and call him personally Father. That was seen as far too intimate. No way, you can't do that. And they never prayed that way. So when they approached God in prayer... They would refer to him as like Lord, like Adonai. They spoke of heaven, of the Most High, but they would never call him Father. And Jesus says, I want you to know that if you are one of my disciples, you are in my kingdom, you come to the Father. You come to God as Father, compassionate. He loves you. He cares for you. And that's where we kind of struggle. Why in the world? Well, the sovereign God of the universe who's made all things, created all things, sustained all things, the absolute most high, have any concern for me. I'm weak. I'm very incapable. I'm oftentimes unfaithful. I have a lot of troubles in my life. Why would the sovereign God care about me? And that's the whole point. He has demonstrated the fullness, how much he loves you in the sending of his son. Isaiah says that our names are actually engraved on his hand. Psalm 139 says his thoughts are continually of us and for us. Once you really let it set into your heart how much you are loved by him, the Father, you're going to find that there's a desire to pray and to approach him in this, this very sincere and intimate way. Another trouble that we have when it comes to prayer is that, frankly, our earthly fathers, maybe this was your experience, but we kind of felt like we were always walking around on eggshells. We just felt like we were barely being tolerated some of the time, if not most of the time. And what happens is we got to kind of like, that was my father, so we kind of translate it to, well, our father. And we get this idea that that God is just uh, really disappointed in us and just barely tolerating us when in actuality he loves us. You want to really add depth and vibrancy to your prayer life, to your spiritual life? Begin with adoration. If you want a picture of what this looks like, just go to the book of Psalms. If you really want to see what it looks like to, to know and adore God, look at how the psalmists have given us patterns on how to do that. The second component that Jesus says, you begin with adoration, but another component is exaltation. Look at verse 10. He says, in verse 9, you pray, Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. You are completely set apart, and your name speaks of everything that you are. And then the very next verse, verse 10, he speaks of exaltation. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth that is, that is, as it is in heaven. You see, if you want to really develop your prayer life, you pray that God's kingdom would come. So often, we're praying that our kingdom would come, and that is the problem. We are seeking to conform God's will to our will. This is the way it should be. 
Lord, I really need you to come through for me and do what I think is best. Nothing wrong for you to pray about what you think is best, but let's get it straight. He is the sovereign, almighty God. We are in his kingdom. He's not in our kingdom. We are in his kingdom. What we want to do is ask God what your kingdom will be done. I want it done like it is in heaven, happening here on earth. When you have that kind of approach, when exaltation is a major part of your prayer life, your prayer life really changes. You see, he is concerned about all of the matters of our life. And we want his will to be done on earth as it automatically is done in heaven. And we want his will to be done specifically in our church, right? We want to be responsive. So what would that look like? We're praying and asking God, but your will be done that like we collectively, starting with you as an individual, but collectively, we would reflect his love, that we would obey his laws, that we would honor him, that we would seek the good for all people, that we would proclaim his goodness, that we would make disciples as he has called us and commissioned us to do. Lord, I would ask that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So often, and I'm going to put myself in this category, we function like immature little children. This is what I want. I want it now, and I'm going to whine about this, and this isn't the way that I would have it. And, and so we're griping and complaining, and we're whining. And when we do ask, we really ask for our own kind of little selfish agenda. And God says, when you, when you pray, pray with exaltation. The greatest prayer that we could ever utter is that God's kingdom would advance in another person and in, an, in, our, in a ministry or in our church. Not our will so much. It's God's will. Because, frankly, it's all about God. I want you to see the absolute God-centeredness to prayer. Another key element for prayer, you've got adoration. You have exaltation. But in verse 11, you see supplication and appreciation. Look what he says in verse 11. Just this very simple phrase, give us this day our daily bread. Bread is a synecdoche. That means a part that represents a whole. Bread it's the simplest of substances that we might eat, representing all of our physical needs, even all of our spiritual needs. Give us this day our daily bread. It speaks of an absolute dependence upon God. It's supplication, which means to ask, to request, and with it is appreciation. Now, he says, give us, bestow upon us. You have to, through your grace, provide what we need. And isn't it interesting? Give us this day our daily bread. Can you think of any time in world history where God's people were dependent upon God to bring the daily bread? Ever happen? Anybody? That's right. When God brought his people out of bondage in Egypt and brought up to the promised land, Remember, do you know where they wandered? 40 years 
in the desert. It's West Texas times 10. There's dr- it's just dry. It's barren. There was nothing there. And yet God's people had to eat. And so how does God provide for the masses of his people the bread that they so desperately needed to survive and to live? He provided daily manna from heaven. And the day before the Sabbath, he actually gave them two portions so they wouldn't work on the Sabbath, but that they would rest and rejoice and worship him. But he provided their daily bread. That's the heart and the dependence that God wants to develop in us. That we are coming to him with supplication for all things and appreciation for all that he gives. I mean, think of just everything that God gives that we just take for granted, and that's the problem. Like that last breath that you just drew, the food that you had this morning. Almost all of us are living in an apartment or a house, or maybe you got a decent tent, right? You probably had a vehicle or a nice bike that you got here today, right? God supplies all of these things. And those are just physical. But just think of the fact that he's given us a spirit and his word. He gives us relationships, meaningful work, ministry, lives, experiences. These are all thousands and thousands of daily blessings that come from God. And they're meant to evoke gratitude. But if you rarely request, you hardly ever recognize, and you don't express any appreciation, guess what that leads to? an absolute shallowness spiritually and an anemic prayer life. But when you see this component of supplication and appreciation, give us this day our daily bread. Why? We grow and we develop. You know, one of the big problems in our prayer life is that we've got the, the focus on the big things versus the little things. And we'll pray about the big things, right? Big things like, well, the job interview, um, purchasing a home or a vehicle or, or the big health issue. Then we'll pray about the big things, but all of the little things, we never even think of them. Hardly even mention them and probably don't. And that's the problem. God wants us to be grateful for all things and to recognize that everything we have has been provided by him. We are absolutely dependent. If you really want to grow in your spiritual life, grow in your prayer life, understanding the need for supplication, which is making requests, and appreciation. And when we do, we grow in daily dependence and gratitude. Notice another component that Jesus focuses on. Remember, he's giving us a pattern The next component is confession. So you've got adoration, exaltation, supplication, and appreciation. But another key component of prayer is confession. Notice what he says in verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. In a parallel passage in Luke 11, verse 4, uh, it's referred to as sins. Forgive us our sins as we've forgiven those who have sinned against us. A debt is something that we owe to God. We have violated, we owe him. And so he's saying, forgive us our debts. Now, does that mean that we pretty much on a regular basis need to ask God 
for his forgiveness and salvation over and over and over again. Is it really possible for you to lose the eternal life and the eternal salvation that God has given you absolutely by grace through faith? It's impossible. He's not talking about justification. He's not talking about a forensic or a judicial forgiveness, but this is the family forgiveness. We're in the family. He's given us his name. We are called Christians because we are united with Christ, but we still sin, right? I do. You do, right? Does God like, oh, that's it, you're out of the family? No, just like when our kids, we got a little issue going on, right? The daily drama, you don't disown them, do you? No, you work it out. There is forgiveness that needs to be given and received. And that's what this text is driving at. He says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You see, our forgiveness, our forgiveness that we've received is the source by which we can forgive others. In fact, a p- evidence of personal forgiveness that you really have received the forgiveness that Jesus provides you through the sacrifice of himself is a willingness to forgive others. You see that that's what God wants us to experience, wholeness of relationship and fellowship. So what do you do when you sin against God? You violate his word. You treat him as unholy. You go chameleon, you know, and you just kind of mold in and match into the environment. When you actually transgress his word, you do what is wrong. What do you do? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's what we do. We ask God for forgiveness. And you know what? He always does forgive us. And you know, that is why... He wants us to forgive others. He gives graciously to forgive. He wants us to extend that forgiveness to others. It shows us how important fellowship is with God and with others. And that's why confession needs to be such an important element to our prayer lives. A regular part of the Christian life is confessing our sins, not to someone else. You don't have to show up at a church. As God brings these matters to mind, you speak to him and you receive his forgiveness. You turn from your sin and you trust in him. Let me give you another primary component of prayer. And that's also found in verse 13. And that is direction and protection. So he says, uh, and he says in verse 13, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You're asking God for direction and protection. The word lead means to bring or to carry. It implies involvement, assistance, guidance, help. This isn't the word uh, for like a general who's kind of on some sort of distant hill, kind of commanding the forces, but more the idea of a shepherd who is right there in it with his flock leading them through the valleys and the difficulties and the hills and the plains and the mountains and the high experiences of life. The shepherd who is going to guide in the midst of where there's evil and danger all around, who is leading and guiding and providing and bringing to health the people 
on the journey of life. They're trusting him as the shepherd. And it's really interesting here where he says, and, lead, and do not lead us into temptation. So what do you think? Does God lead his people into temptation? Well, what is a temptation? A temptation is a solicitation to do evil. You see this uh, really early on in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. You've got Satan, and he tempts Adam and Eve. He wants them to disregard and disobey God, to not believe God or trust in his word that he had given. Rather, to convince you like, oh, you know, God's holding out on you. You know, that if you eat this fruit, you'll be like him. Wouldn't that be cool? Don't you want to be like God? He's holding out on you. It was a temptation, a solicitation to do what is evil. Does God want his people to fail? <laughs> Absolutely not. You might want to write this down, James chapter 1, verse 13. It says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So when you see this here in verse 13, and do not lead us into temptation, it's a prayer for God's leadership to keep us from engaging in a temptation that will lead to sin. Keep us from evil. It could be translated just the evil that's around or even the evil one who is leaking, looking to seek to kill and to destroy. You see, Satan cannot rob you of your salvation. He can't strip you of salvation, but he can rob you of your peace, take away your joy, lead you to complacency, make you feel perpetual guilty, get you to not focus on God, get you to alienate from the body of Christ, and he would like nothing better than to do that. So this is the prayer of saying, God, would you lead us? Not so that any of us would ever fall into temptation but that we would experience your goodness and your grace. Like he says, would you deliver us from evil? I don't know if you've ever had the experience where you've hired a guide to lead you on an adventure. But, that's, but what a guide does is that they actually take you through, whether it's some sort of, you know, like mountainous experience, some sort of difficult journey. You're not spared the difficulties, but he guides you or she guides you through those experiences and you make it to the other end. You make it to the destination. We need to be praying that God would lead us, not just me as an individual, but lead us, all of us. Not that we're buying into the evil that's all around, but that we would be experiencing his leadership in every respect. We need God to lead us away from all of the issues that create so many problems in our life, like lust, our uncontrolled anger, especially when we're tired and hungry and stressed. So a major component of our prayer life is asking for God's direction and protection in this life. It is a dangerous world out there. The temptations are real. You're going to probably experience them today, for sure this week, I want you to know that there is a guide who will lead us, but we must be seeking him and asking him for his direction and his protection in our life. I have found when I'm facing temptation, just to actually say the name of Jesus, just to say it either in my head or out loud, puts me in a situation where I find the strength and the way 
to walk away, to sidestep the danger that is in front of me. But the dangers are all around. It's like a minefield. And sometimes you actually see like, whoa, I could seriously get off track. I could really make a mess of something here. Jesus. You see, in the end, sin isn't so much about a violation of a rule as it is a violation of a relationship. And so we just even say the name Jesus. <laughs> and the great shepherd of the sheep guides us. And he says, hey, come back here. Remember me. I'll lead you. It's asking for God's direction and protection that God would lead us in such a way that we will honor him, that we will be a blessing to others, and that we will glorify God amidst of the dangers that we face. What an amazing pattern for prayer. You see it? Adoration, exaltation, supplication, and appreciation, confession, praying and asking God for direction and protection. And notice how this prayer ends, glorification. Also in verse 13, and your Bible probably has this in brackets. You see that kind of mid-verse there? He says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The reason it's in brackets is because in our earliest original manuscripts, that sentence is not there. Now, we have plenty of manuscripts that it is, and and if it was added, it was likely because this was part of the early church practice where they would end their prayers with the glorification of God. It's really, if you look at it, First Chronicles chapter 29, I think it's in verse 11, this is really very similar to David's, how David concludes his speech. And so this prayer begins with adoration and exaltation, begins with God. And so this pattern for prayer ends with God because, friends, that's what life is all about. It's about Him. It's the absolute God-centeredness, Christ-centeredness of life. And so a major dimension of prayer is glorification. God, that your kingdom would be advancing in my heart, in my church, among believers everywhere, and that your glory would be made known. Friends, these are the key components to prayer. And when we practice them, friends, our spiritual lives grow and our prayer lives grow exponentially. So did you really want to grow and develop in your spiritual life? This is our text. And Jesus says, you want to prioritize prayer. I want to challenge you. Take this pattern and implement it this week. And see God just really expanding your soul and adding depth to your life, learning to pray with fullness. It'll be revolutionary. But if you want to develop your spiritual lives, notice what else Jesus emphasizes. In verses 14 and 15, we need to pursue forgiveness. Now, Jesus had already emphasized forgiveness in the prayer model that he had already presented to us. But he drives it home. Look at verse 14. He says, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. And just like we've talked about, this isn't a judicial forgiveness. This isn't the salvation, justification forgiveness. This is the family forgiveness. And you see, if you were, as a believer, 
unwilling to forgive others, you are going to cause breakdown, trouble in your fellowship with God. Your relationship status is solidified by the finished work of Jesus. But you're not going to know the fullness of joy and peace, hope and God's presence if you are unwilling to forgive others. It is critically important to your spiritual development. So much so, next week, we're going to spend the entire message speaking on the subject of forgiveness. Because if you get this wrong and you settle for bitterness, friends, it affects not only just you, it, it affects your fellowship with God and your ability to relate well to others. Forgiveness is like a coin, and every coin has two sides. There's the accepting of forgiveness, and there's the extending. And if you will not forgive, you're going to end up with a hard heart. So that's what Jesus emphasizes here. You really want to grow deep in your spiritual life? You prioritize prayer. You pursue forgiveness. And finally, you practice fasting. Look what he says, verse 16. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites, the actors do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. They wanted to put on a show. They got some attention. Jesus says, they got what they're looking for. But you, my disciples, verse 17, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And notice he says, when you are fasting. Just like we saw last week, there's assumptions that there are going to be spiritual practices that the believers are going to place in their life, and one is fasting. Now, you're like, well, what exactly is fasting? It is the voluntary denial for a period of time of something that is otherwise like a normal function. So many people would associate fasting with fasting from food, and that's, that is primarily how it is practiced. But you could actually fast from anything that is a normal part of your life so that you focus on prayer, seeking God's will and his mercy, and seeking God's kingdom intervention. That's why you would fast, so that you can devote yourself to prayer. But it could be, it certainly could be food, but it could be TV, media, people, your phone. Like, just think about that phone, right? You, you probably spend more time with your phone and think more of it than you ever would do even food at this point, right? Try a fast where are like, you know what? I'm going to set this thing down. I'm going to really fast for 30 minutes. See if you can do it. You know, like, oh, my hand just wants to touch that thing. I can't even live without it, right? I got to keep it in my pocket. I got to hold it, hold it near to my heart, right? Or you fast for even a few hours or even a whole day. I think the world will go on. You're going to make it. But you set it aside because I'm seeking your will. God, I need your kingdom intervention in these matters. You know, the Pharisees, um, the reason that Jesus is drawing attention to this is they, they fasted. Did you know they fasted twice a week? Every Monday, every Thursday. All the restaurants the Pharisees would normally frequent in Israel, they pretty much could shut down because they aren't going to show up because those were the days they fasted. It's interesting. There's only one fast that is actually given in the Old Testament. 
It's on the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees fasted twice a week. And you're thinking, wow, that's pretty cool to be devoted to God like that. But here's the problem. Just like Jesus said, they were acting. It was just a show. And so when they're like, got up, like, oh, what day is it? Oh, it's Monday. <gasps> it's the day I'm fasting. Oh, okay, and I got to dress and look the part. And they would mope around, and they would be acting all gloomy. Their hair would be disheveled, and, and it was all a show. So people go, wow, what a holy person. They're fasting today. It's, it's Monday. And again, we saw the same show on Thursday. And Jesus said, you know what? I don't want any of that. He says, I want you to anoint your head with oil. And I want you to wash your face. These were the normal practices, like you see in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, of people that were living in the joy of knowing God. Even when your heart is breaking and you're interceding for God on deep matters and you're refraining from food so you can stay focused on God, I want you to know you do it in such a way as so that no one would even notice but God. And he who sees what is done in secret will reward you in secret, just like Jesus says. Quiet devotion will be greatly rewarded by God. Rewards like the peace of his presence, like hope in the midst of hurt, joy in the journey, strength in the storms, and God's guidance in the midst of great difficulties, especially when your heart is breaking. So friends, do you see how powerful this text is? It shows us how you and I can really develop our spiritual lives to how God goes about it. So we move past being superficial and complacent, the bored believer, to vibrancy and health. But friends, just like he says, you have to grow in these practices. There is nothing that you're good at that you didn't apply time and energy, right? Anything from cooking to teaching those kids, to building bridges, to fixing things or relationships. The reason why you're good at your job is because there's been investments made. You were mentored, you were modeled, you probably were educated, you practiced, you failed a lot, but you got better, right? Or you lost your job. I want you to know the same is true in our spiritual lives, especially in the issue of prayer. You see, God develops our spiritual lives through the spiritual practices he prescribes. And God wants us to experience his vibrancy, the fullness of life. And he has shown us how that could be possible, where we become generous, gracious, God-saturated, Christ-centered people. God develops our spiritual lives through the spiritual practices he prescribes.